The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. This is not a buy, sell or hold recommendation for any particular security. Where we are seeing some, some fascinating opportunities is actually around software. And, and you look at the evolution of software in China, they've still got many decades to go before they've kind of um, started to evolve to the same level as happened in, in, in Europe and the US. And I think what you're going to see there is significant policy tailwinds where the Chinese want to evolve their software companies to the level that software companies have got to um, in Europe and in the US. Welcome to the second episode of the Quality Investing podcast series, where in each episode, we'll take a deep dive into a particular investment topic, analyzing the market dynamics and the quality opportunities in the segment. This episode, we'll be discussing investment in China. My name is Joe Knight. I'm a portfolio specialist on the quality team here at 91. I'm delighted to be joined by Charlie Dutton, portfolio manager on the quality team and specialist in Asia. Also, we're very lucky to be joined by Charlie's right hand, Mendy Zhang, global analyst who covers many of our A-share names. So let's dive right in. Charlie, October last year, there were many opinion pieces saying China was perhaps uninvestable. So what happened and how bad did it get? So, I mean, October last year, uh, I've been doing this for, for over 20 years, was pretty much as, as a bad a time as I'd seen China get to. Uh, and it was a number of um, aspects suddenly occurred kind of in, in succession and, and really made China look pretty uninvestable for a while. Um, you know, you, I think we can all think back to, you know, whether it was Pelosi uh, visiting Taiwan and, and the Chinese almost putting a semi-blockade around Taiwan. Uh, whether it was Hu Jintao uh, being escorted off the stage at the at the Chinese uh, Communist Party get together in in October last year, um, whether it was the semiconductor wars which were starting to occur between between China and the U.S., it had got to a point where you were looking at China and thinking, well, wh- where is this going to go? And and on top of all this, you also had the fact that China was still in a full COVID lockdown, and this was something which meant that the economy was stalling, and you had all these other auxiliary. Uh, aspects occurring. And you saw a massive dive in in share prices, in capital market prices during that period, so that by the time you got to the middle of October, um, things did look pretty poor. But then I suppose the snapback was equally uh, as quick. The Hang Seng China indexes was up close to 50% in the early part of this year. So why did the market, do you think, change its view so quickly? Was it purely that COVID policy, which was pushing down sentiment? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it was an incredible snapback. Um, the, one caveat I would say there, though, is that where um, Chinese equity markets are now are pretty similar to where they were in August last year. So although there has been this, this dramatic rise since the October lows, that as much reflects how um, poor sentiment was towards Chinese um, asset classes and towards the equity markets at that period, as opposed to there now being a great um, rise in, in, in equity markets. When you look at that snapback, I think the, the couple of things there. One is that things have got extremely distressed. So even, even less poor news was good news, and, and that would have, would have come through. But clearly, the main thing which did change was this significant pivot in, in China COVID's policy. And with that, you've got this great economic reopening coming through. 
Um, I think equity markets as a whole had you know looked at what had happened, um, or capital markets as a whole looked at what happened in the U.S. and Europe when you had the reopening, when you had this great explosion and uh, in in spending. And if you look at the saving rates as an example in in China, I mean they're extraordinary levels, they're the highest level of of savings. Uh, anywhere in the world, and there is now an expectation that that saving rate saving rate is going to be released. But what we've seen, as I say, from that October period to January to now, is that you had markets have um, come back from that very distressed level. I'd now say that we're in a slight what I call a holding passing period, and and part of that was that we wanted to see what was going to happen to Chinese policy uh, on an, on an ongoing basis, and what was actually going to happen in terms of. Um, positions and what was going to occur uh, within the Politburo so that we could get an idea of what policy uh, was going to be like and, and then uh, start seeing where we think the opportunity set would be going forward. Sure, that makes sense. So now that the dust has, I suppose, started to settle somewhat and we've probably got a clearer line of sight into the makeup of you know, policy or um, and the sort of structure of, of the government going forward, um, what does the road ahead look like? It's, it's an interesting one because uh, on the one hand, without doubt, there has been a, a massive consolidation of power in, in China over the last 12 months um, in particular. And, and this, is actually, this has to some degree freaked markets out. It's like, well, what does this actually mean? Now that President Xi has got you know, all his um, yes men uh, apparently in, in, the, in the Politburo and, and they, are, oh, they are all men. Um, and whether this means that one of the great things which had always served the Communist Party so well or served China so well had been this fantastic feedback loop. And what I mean by that is that um, if something is going wrong um, at, at the bottom, there is an effective feedback loop which feeds that through to the leaders and they're able to adjust policy as a result. Now, if you get too much consolidation of power, will that feedback loop be broken? Now, what I would say on the on the other side is a kind of a positive aspect is that what you did see in, in 2021 and 2022 is that because there wasn't that consolidation of power, when regulation was being put in place, in particular, let's say, around the education sector, and we, we saw private education getting banned in China, but also around the tech sector and all the, the tech regulation that came through, multiple bodies were putting in different regulation, and this caused a high level of dislocation in the capital markets. What I think you'll see going forward is because there's been greater consolidation of power is that you'll actually see much more succinct and much more straightforward regulation coming through and it will be less confused. But the negative side will be that that feedback loop uh, could be broken. And maybe just to add one thing on the feedback loop. I mean, the department responsible for gathering these feedbacks and opinion from the general public, which is known as the National Public Complaints and Proposal Admin in China, is actually now being put directly under the State Council, which in a way gives it a much much more power and also um, shorten the feedback chain. Brilliant. Thanks. So I just want to maybe go a bit more, uh, a bit deeper into policy and how policy going forward may be slightly different to what we've experienced in the past. So Mendy, can you perhaps provide a bit more of a deep dive into um, where the focus may be? Sure. So if we just look at the product bureau that have been put up over the past weekend, um, Li Chang is now the official premier of China, and he used to be the party sec- secretary of um, Zhejiang province and then Shanghai. I mean, those regions are kind of known to be one of the best private economics um, growth regions. Sorry, didn't the market, though, react quite negatively when that was announced in October of his, his position? 
Yes, I think in a way the market has the impression that he basically messed up the Shanghai lockdown, and then right. um, basically everyone else on the uh, product uh, on the premier uh, uh, product bureau side are um, seized royalists. But if we actually look at his um, policy direction, which were again outlined in the two sessions today, there were kind of three key points. So firstly, um, it's the expanding domestic cons uh, consumption demand that involves looking at stabilizing growth, employment and inflation. Um, and then a the second point is on uh, high quality development, which includes um, encourage of investments and developments in science, healthcare and technology in the new air, where now property is it's officially in the past. Then thirdly, there's on the support of uh, private economics, the rights for entrepreneurials um, and also create a market-oriented, legalized and internationalized business environments. So those are kind of the three key points of his uh, policy direction, um, which in a way I, 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 I would say this is what investors are really looking for um, in China. So I suppose just to summarize, we had the lows in early October. We have had a, a quick snapback because better news um, was well received. And now the policy direction is, I suppose, focusing on higher quality growth rather than reliant on sort of the infrastructural property spend to, to drive growth. But we're bottom up stock pickers. That's what we get paid for on a day to day. So where are the opportunities um, that fit within our sort of quality investing approach um, in the market? So I mean, just, just looking at this from a kind of a China perspective, um, you, you we we are bottom up stock pickers but we can't be um you know blind to what's happening on a global perspective and so one of the starting points that we make at the moment when we're looking at individual businesses within china is around polarization and what i mean by polarization is is what's clearly happening between the us and china and i don't think there's any doubt in in people's minds certainly not in our minds that uh, on a medium short term long term uh, basis that uh, clearly uh, U.S.-China relations are going to remain uh, pretty difficult. Um, I think what is interesting, and if you certainly look at, at the amount of trade which is occurring between the U.S. and China, uh, the irony is that actually uh, there's a significant uplift in U.S.-China trade compared to pre-COVID levels currently. Uh, and it just shows how integrated actually those two economies are. But on a headline basis, you're going to continue to see heavy amounts of negative ed headlines. Now, what does that mean from us for a, from an equity investment perspective? Uh, well, we just got to make sure that we avoid those sectors which could see um, policy regulation or, or uh, could see regulation coming through, which can seriously uh, affect the, the business outcomes for, for these individual companies. So it's quite interesting you know, when you look at what's happening, particularly within the semiconductor sector. And we talked about this um, in depth with you, Joe, uh, last time on the last podcast. Um, you know, clearly, the U.S. has come through and just said, right, we are stopping the, the Chinese semiconductor um, advancement uh, in place right now. Uh, historically, there'd always been this kind of sliding rule approach, which was as long as US semiconductor technology was improving, we, they didn't mind that Chinese improved, and now they've come through and stopped it. So as an example there, we, we make sure that we will not be invested in any of the semiconductor space in China because there is just too much tail risk around what could happen from a, a regulatory perspective. And, and that also applies to, to other parts of um, the hardware uh, chain, technology hardware chain that, that, that we look at. Where we are seeing some, some fascinating opportunities is actually around software. And, and you look at the evolution of software in China. Uh, they've still got many decades to go before they've kind of um, started to evolve to the same level as happened in, in, in Europe and the US. And I think what you're going to see there is significant policy uh, tailwinds where the Chinese want to evolve their software companies to the level that software companies 
um, have have got to um, in Europe and in the US. So a couple of the companies we've been looking at recently, for instance, one would be Kingsoft. So Kingsoft is the Microsoft equivalent of um, of China. What what's interesting from that perspective is that the government have come in and said, right, we need to move everyone onto Kingsoft, and and it is very much a network effect when you have software um, businesses like that. But all uh, government um, uh, offices now have to use Kingsoft, so that's starting starting that move. And over time, that's the the effect that we're going to see. So so King, Kingsoft for us is a, is a fascinating opportunity. Yeah, just also to add on the uh, education system side of thing. I mean, Kingsoft's uh, the WPS office has now officially replaced Microsoft Office and being included into the um, national computer run examination in China. So we really do seeing the replacement coming from the education side. And it's interesting because um, many you've you've been using Kingsoft software, and uh, you're always a, a, an advocate saying that you actually think it's slightly better than the Microsoft version, and you say that it was actually invented before Microsoft. Yes, so Kingsoft is actually invented. I think it was about two years before before Microsoft in China, and I I mean the user interface are somewhat similar, but the Kingsoft Office provide more function. For example, the translation function and also just kind of checking on uh, different suggestion for the uh, Chinese language, which are not available from Microsoft. And, and Microsoft not able to sell at all into the Chinese market with newer versions. No, they're they're able they still, to. Okay, so it's more about a replacement to. from. The government level which will then filter down to private enterprise okay yes and also from the education level if the students stop using microsoft and starting to use wps then that will be the future route wps is the is the king's off version and and but on but on that point it's a bit like why do we all use microsoft well everybody else is yeah so there is a critical mass that you get to that once everyone is using one one network or, or one one um application then everyone else has to, uh, and I think that's what we're going to see happen um, over time, and and it's actually reflected in, in the numbers. I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you look at Kingsoft's revenue growth over the last five years, I mean, it's a really high double-digit revenue growth that we've seen coming through, and increasingly a, a deferred revenue uh, base as well. Yes, around thirty percent. Mendy, stop from you. I would say um, on on or just on the similar localization trend, yeah. it will be. Groden, which is the uh, the leading property and infrastructure construction software in China, with over eighty percent market share in uh, various verticals that they operate in. But sorry, not to interrupt. Property quality, it's a bit of an oxymoron. So how does um, how does how do you think about the long term investment case and what are the attributes that fit the the way we approach looking investment? Yeah, so um, Golden is slightly different in that they are the pioneer in the digitalization of the the industry, which experienced big push from uh, from the government. Um, so basically, they are helping all those uh, property and construction companies moving into the modern world. So I mean, they have been experienced more than twenty percent revenue growth over the past five years, despite all this noise that we hear around the uh, property market, and it really meets our key quality criteria of low economic sensitivity. Um, and I mean, there are just material material economic benefit of using golden software as it improves safety, improves uh, quality, efficiency, and, pop- and profitability for the uh, property industry. So it, by using the software, it adds about 3% cost saving to the industry where the average net profit margin for the industry is only around 3%. So it's almost doubling. Um, yeah, in a way, it's so multiple pain points for the uh, construction industry and they are building up such a strong platform solution where eventually every construction project in China should be connected with water, electricity and golden. So that's the very strong dominant market position that we like. I suppose it's got strong 
ESG credentials as well in terms of that offering that it provides in terms of digitizing quite capital intensive sector. Yes, so the um, by using Golden software, you roughly reduce 50% of the carbon emissions for the for each uh, construction project by um, improving the efficiency, by being able to basically run the whole whole, po- whole project on um, a digital fund before actually doing it. So then you can actually avoid a lot of, a lot of the mistakes. Does 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 Gloden then, Mendy? Does does it come under? Do many kind of ESG funds and sustainable funds? Do they focus on that, or, or are they not that kind of? Is Gloden's IR or Gloden's company? Are they aware of the kind of the ESG credentials that they have? Yeah. Yes. So um, that's one of the I, I would say key uh, push point that the IR did talk about. However, just because of the I would say the slightly different in disclosure in Asia versus um, the disclosure that we are looking for in the uh, I would say in the in the Western world, um, in China they haven't put out any uh, any more official disclosure requirement on carbon targets or. Um, or uh, for example, the SB, the sand-based uh, target that we are looking at in the Western world, those doesn't mean much in the in in China. So um, in that sense, Golden doesn't tick the box that what the Western investors are looking for. Although they have, they, they do have a very strong ESG credential. Like, I mean, carbon reduction is what they focus on. Interesting. It'll be it'll be it's going to be fascinating to see how that evolves over time. Definitely. And then just sorry, just to close from an international. Uh, perspective obviously a similar stock with a similar business model which some listeners may have heard of would be Autodesk is there much I'm not sure of um, how much Autodesk exposure to the the China market is but is there any threat from international players disrupting Glodin's offering or do they have a pretty dominant position Um, it's highly unlikely that Autodesk will be able to um, you know in a way disrupt Golden's position in China, just given what what's happening on, um, as what Charlie said before, on the localization uh, trend fronts, and also um, the Chinese government are encouraging using local software. Um, yeah, and I, I in a way, uh, Golden's offerings and uh, Autodesk's offering they are slightly different. So Autodesk focuses slightly more on the design uh, design front, whereas Golden is more taking the design, moving it one step onto uh, cost management, onto construction. But they are also building up the the bo- the, the, the bottom layer of the uh, uh, of, of of the architecture um, design. Fascinating. Um, but just changing direction slightly, one part of the market where we also do have. Um, exposure in China is within healthcare, which if I'm correct in understanding, due to the underfunding in the space, the lack of capacity was a large driver of why actually China kept their COVID, uh, zero, uh, COVID zero policy for so long. So what is the policy, Charlie, that underlines the sector? And where do you both feel the opportunities are? I mean, it's, it's I think it's often um, under-recognized um, outside of China that the key reason, one of the key reasons for uh, the zero COVID policy was the fact there was a concern around the um, the depth and and um, yeah the the depth of the healthcare sector sector in in China. So just as an example, there um, although it's significantly increased, I think actually pre COVID, many you might correct me here if, I, if I'm wrong, but it was I think there were about five ICU beds per hundred thousand people, and post COVID, it's it's about ten. Yes. Yeah. Um, now that compares to, let's say, Europe or the US, where it's near the 25 to 30 mark. So there were some some very uh, significant studies done around what would happen if 
COVID was kind of released um, within the population and, and you had a, a significant impact on the population. And, and you know, it suddenly came back with some of the uh, data analysis around that, that, you know, it, it wasn't tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who could, who could die from, from COVID, but millions of people. And I think that really is what largely drove uh, the Chinese COVID policy. Um, and just remembering in there that you know one of the, the the rationales for the Chinese Communist Party being being in power and why they have the you know, the tacit support of the majority of the Chinese uh, population is that they will keep them safe, and that could be from a, a national security perspective, but also against this type of um, national disease. So that was one of the kind of you know, the underlying fundamentals um, behind that behind that support. So you, you roll forward to now, and, and what we're looking at is we're going to see massive investment within the healthcare sector um, in, in China uh, going forward. Uh, and again, it's back to this idea of polarization, because what they don't want is to do massive, massive um, investment in the healthcare sector, um, get a lot of overseas uh, units or, or medical devices coming through, which again might at some point, if, if things get really bad, I'd, I'd hope it wouldn't happen in the healthcare sector, but it might happen at some point, where there could be some sort of regulation um, from the US, which which bans the um, the export of, of medical devices. So certainly a lot of the work we've been looking at, and, and one of the companies we're, we're very positive on, is looking at that uh, medical device side. So that's a company called Mindray. Uh, Mindray is, is you know, the largest medical device um, manufacturer in, in China. Uh, it's a fantastic business. You know, it's something which um, is is really top of mind for us. And I think one of the things which really excites us about that is the fact that you can see that it's such a good business that it actually has a very good uh, international business as well, particularly within emerging markets. So it's obviously doing doing something um, very, very well. Um, I won't steal Mendy's thunder because I think uh, Mendy knows a great deal more about Mindray than I do. So that's, I'll stop there. <laughs> so yeah, just similar to what you said, they, they are the leaders in uh, providing medical device in China that are needed for you know ICU, circu- uh, surgical rooms, diagnostic functions in hospital, for example. Um, and they hold over um, 65% of market share in patient monitor, which still provides a very large penetration opportunity. I mean, i.e. The, the, the China's patient monitor per capita is only around 8% of uh, US level. So there's a huge run- runway for them to uh, catch up. Um, and I mean, in a way, Myra has just better products and technology, a, a much stronger reputations, better service and also cost control versus all of its um, domestic players. So a really dominant position in a structurally growing, growing market. So just, just on that though, Mendy, I mean, one of the concerns I would have there would be um, around procurement. You know, this is a centrally run um, um, country. You know, if I'm the Chinese government, I'd definitely be looking at the state of the NHS, uh, the state of the U.S. healthcare system, and going, I do not want to go down that route. You know, do do healthcare stocks globally earn too much? Do they over earn? And therefore, they could put in quite draconian procurement policies, which could affect the likes of Mindray. If we're looking at sort of the latest volume-based procurement that are happening in China, so at the moment we are seeing some movement on the uh, um, diagnosis reagent size. Um, so at the moment, any top two winners will be able to capture 80% of the market share. And if we look at um, the regions where mine rates are playing on, majority of, of those IVD reagent regions are still being 
um, dominated in a way by the foreign players. So with MyRay coming in and having their price, uh, just because of the cost uh, advantage and control that they have versus some of the foreign peers, they were uh, most of the price are kind of 50% lower than what the five, foreign- 5-0. Five 5-0. Five lower than what the other foreign peers are. So with them coming in, VBP, the volume-based procurement, actually being a benefit uh, playing to MyRay, where they're able to win, win those and then just basically capture 80% of the market shares by win- winning the, uh, the uh, VBP. And the other key holding for us is in contract research organization, TigerMed, which has many attractive features um, as an investment case, but also there's some risk we need to be cognizant of. So Charlie, if you could perhaps touch upon some of those risks. Sure. So, so um, yeah, a contract research organization like, like TigerMed, um, yeah, the uh, just just so our listeners can can understand what they do. That basically they they take on drug testing and and they they um, get the um, the drug testing in place and they get the the individuals in place who will have um, those drugs tested. So level one, level two, level three would be the equivalent at the FDA level one, two, and three in, in the US. Um, and these are contracts which can last kind of five to seven years. So you get a, a, get a lot of um, duration when you're looking at businesses like this. Um, you can see um, what their earnings are going to be in, in in many years' time. Now, obviously, when we look at a business like that, you know, we can't have gone through this whole you know podcast and and you know, everything we've been saying here. And similarly, when we did the semiconductor podcast and looked at the polarization which is going to occur globally, uh, what's happening between U.S. and China um, relations, and not say, well, actually, doesn't a Tiger Med doesn't that have some level of risk around it because of biotech funding? And you know we're we're seeing what's happening at the moment with regards um, tech funding uh, in the U.S., which is a slightly different risk uh, with regards to what's happened to, to Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, but you know maybe the U.S. could come out and say, well, actually, that those big PE firms, those big venture capital firms, which are investing so much in the biotech sector in China and making some good returns from them, um, isn't this something which is actually benefiting? Uh, China and it could be of a, a security risk to the U.S. going forward. So some of the work we've done on that is that you look at well, if if there are regulations comes out around TigerMed um, or around the the contract research um, sector or around the biotech sector, what could be the long term revenue impact uh, on those businesses? Because we can't go blind into these businesses and we've got to be aware of where the regulatory impact is. So you've got a business which has got fantastic long term growth prospects, but has also got some level of tail risk around uh, funding in the sector. Yeah, so um, the China Biotech accounts of roughly a third of TigerMed's revenue, and of of which maximum thirty percent of their funding could be coming from foreign investors. So if we say assume all of those thirty percent are coming from the U.S. and that get, that gets banned, then it will be an impact of around ten percent um, to to TigerMed's uh, revenue, and. But just again, so like what Charlie mentioned, um, given the nature of TigerMed's contract, phase one to three takes at least five years. So they do have very high revenue visibility, so a relatively limited earning impact in the short term if that ever if that happens. Then if we fast forward and looking at the longer term, we do like the stock because of the structural trends that we we talked about on um, growing pharmaceutical R&D, especially for innovative drugs in China, and that's one of the big pushed by the uh, Chinese government uh, and also rising CIO outsourcing. The outsourcing ratio is currently 40% in China versus sort of uh, 70% in the US. And um, just uh, on this kind of uh, industry backdrop, I mean, uh, TigerMed has the widest access of clinical trials in China. And this, this thing is, again, slightly different to the Western world. Not all of the clinical sites will be able to conduct a clinical trial. So it's relatively supply constraint in China. 
And TigerMed also have the biggest clinical trial team in China with over 7,000 employees versus only 2,000 for the, for the number two. They just have a, a much better reputation and more experience in the novel drug development with number one market share and of which 53% of the class one drug approval in China over the past five years are actually conducted by TigerMed. Charlie, Mendy, thank you. It was a great conversation. I think gave a great overview to how we're viewing China and some of the opportunities that there are. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.